evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the University of Sydney and the Great Hall. My name is Duncan Iverson. I'm uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research here at the University of Sydney. It's wonderful to see you here for the final uh, event of the Sydney Festival of Democracy. Let me begin, first of all, by acknowledging that we meet tonight uh, on the land of the Gadigal people, one of the first peoples of Australia and one of the first peoples of Sydney. The Victoria Park behind us was in that natural basin, uh, uh, an important meeting place for culture and politics. So it's inappropriate that we meet tonight uh, to talk about similar issues. The university is very proud of uh, the fact that this has been a place of learning, not just for 165 years, but for more than 50,000 years. So I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the Gadigal people tonight, and also acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the audience with us tonight. Welcome also to all of you who've come uh, from uh, uh, around the city and elsewhere to join us tonight. Uh, you know, uh, John Dewey once said, the only uh, solution to the problems of democracy is more democracy, and we might say, and more festivals of democracy uh, as well. So I'm uh, delighted to be able to uh, uh, host tonight's event with our very distinguished speaker. Let me just say very briefly that it is also uh, uh, a real tribute to John Keane and, and his team in the Sydney Democracy Network to have put together such an extraordinary week of events and also really to highlight the extraordinary uh, strength of research at the University of Sydney in democracy writ large. We have some of the world's leading political scientists working on democracy. We have great historians of democracy. We have a whole range of, of, of work going on at the university engaging in this incredibly important topic. And we're absolutely delighted that the Sydney Democracy Network is continuing to lead uh, on that front for us. Well, tonight we're here to hear from one of Australia's leading uh, public uh, intellectuals. The last time Professor Garner was with us, he was receiving an honorary degree in this very hall, and I was honored to be able to read the disclaimer for that degree, so it's a particular pleasure to be here tonight. And we're here also marking uh, really an extraordinary, uh, I guess, anniversary uh, in the publication of Joseph Schumpeter's uh, legend, I mean, un unbelievably important uh, book, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, published in 1941. Uh, we were just chatting about Schumpeter's legacy, and Ross is going to be talking about that tonight. But, you know, there's a sense in which Schumpeter has never been more relevant to us today. Here was someone who was, uh, on the one hand, challenging some of the key assumptions of, of democratic theory uh, at that time, questioning whether there really was something like the general will to which uh, a democratic system could refer, asking very hard questions about the possibility of collective decision-making, uh, and really setting a, a, an agenda for democratic theory for years to come. He was deeply worried about the compatibility between uh, uh, markets and democratic systems, and in, and in many ways, what do we face today? Uh, the rise of populism, the question about whether democracies can cope with the crises we face in our society, and a deep cynicism, a deep pessimism, I should say, about the possibility of democracy. So uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, topic, if slightly depressing and challenging, to be considering tonight. As many of you know, uh, Professor Garneau is, is an economist whose career has been built around the analysis and practice of policy connected to the development, economic policy, and international relations in Australia, Asia, and the Pacific. He's held a, a range of numerous roles, which I won't try and summarize here. He is Professorial Fellow in Economics at the University of Melbourne, and in 2009 he was a, awarded a degree of Doctor of Letters, Honoris Causa, from the ANU, and uh, a similar uh, uh, honor bestowed here at the University of Sydney, as I just mentioned. He's a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Science, a Distinguished Fellow of the Economic Society of Australia, and he's a Distinguished Life Member of the Australian Agriculture and Resources Economic Society. And I think, most impressively, Ross is, is one of the broadest ranging and, and I think uh, interesting uh, public intellectuals that Australia has today. So without further ado, I'm delighted to invite Ross to speak to us about capitalism, socialism, democracy, old visions, new realities. Professor Garner. Thanks, Duncan. Uh, it's great to be here in this hall at the foot of that uh, ambiguous Democrat, uh, William Wentworth, uh, without whom we might not have had such uh, an early start, and if he'd been more successful in his own objectives, we would certainly have had uh, a, a, a less happy start to democracy, but uh, uh, a very important part of the Australian history of 
democracy. Great to be part of uh, the Festival of Democracy uh, and, uh, and the program that uh, John Kane and his colleagues have put together. Uh, Duncan's just reminded me that this is the 75th anniversary of uh, Schumpeter's book. I wasn't anticipating that when we agreed the title. Uh, for a while last century, democratic capitalism was triumphant. Struggles that had dominated global politics through the first half of the 20th century had passed into history. Real existing versions of socialism had failed. The hard capitalism of earlier times had been tamed by democracy. Now, at times, it seems that the tragic history of the old struggle is returning as fast. Fox News, Corbyn and Sanders, Boris Johnson and Trump, the new Australian Senate, the French National Front, an alternative for Germany. This evening, I want to lift our eyes from the awkward contemporary realities to visions of what might be. There is a chance this century to bring most of the world's people into the material standards of living now enjoyed in the developed world. I call that condition the maturation of global development. As all of the world's people would live in high-income countries or would have been through the demographic transition to fertility levels below replacement and the labour force would be shrinking. Capital would be abundant and cheap. Great wealth um, would bring family security but not high incomes. High incomes would have to be earned by innovation and entrepreneurship. No one would be poor simply because they have not inherited wealth as labour would be scarce and valuable. Globalisation would involve exchange of goods and services among countries based on special strengths and knowledge and capacities as it is amongst the developed countries today. There would be no rush of people to secure residence in the richest countries because all would provide reasonable living standards for their people. If democratic capitalism survives till then, it would do well, free of today's stresses from inequality and downward pressures on incomes from the global economy. With the maturation of global development, there is a chance, but no certainty, that most people would live in successful democracies. In the democracies, policy would be developed and applied in a disciplined way to advance some conception of the public interest in which the maintenance of high standards of living of most citizens is the dominant objective. Yet we can't rule out the possibility that many or most people would live in authoritarian capitalist systems. Authoritarian capitalism would only have survived to the maturation of global development if they were able to sustain commitment to equitable distribution and to control the political manifestation of the desire for greater personal influence over affairs of state as incomes rise. History suggests that that is not possible, but we don't really know. Today, a seventh of humanity's seven billion live in developed countries which enjoy high material standards. Today, putting aside quibbles at the margin, Singapore, all of these live in democracies. Authoritarian China is home for nearly a fifth of the world's people. On the more modest trajectories of the new model of economic growth, China will join the ranks of the high-income countries within a couple of decades. China's state policy today gives high priority to securing transition from upper-middle income to high-income status. That requires difficult reform and structural change. It would seem to require political reform of a kind that no Leninist regime has accepted. It is also difficult for more prosaic economic reasons. It may or may not succeed. China will succeed in this structural change. Most people in the developed countries would probably live in an authoritarian capitalist economic system with Chinese socialist characteristics at some time in the 2030s. Today's correlation between democracy and developed country status will have been blown apart. Probably and not certainly because we don't know for sure how the Chinese political system will change once high incomes have been achieved. Today, the developed countries in China together are home to about a third of the world's people. A bit more than half of the global population lives in developing countries other than China in which modern economic growth is well established. While most are, are behind China, they are catching up with the developed world over time. 
The huge democracies of India and Indonesia, accounting for a quarter of the world's people, have continued strong growth through troubles in the developed world since the great crash of 2008. There are setbacks in some countries from time to time, as today in Russia, Brazil, Nigeria and South Africa and other resource exporters after the end of the China boom. There's one last seventh of humanity to account for, a group that has only recently or has not yet entered sustained modern economic growth. These people mostly live in sub-Saharan Africa. A small number of them, but of large importance to Australia, inhabit the island countries in Australia's immediate neighbourhood. The good news here is that some of the countries of sub-Saharan Africa, including Ethiopia, Tanzania and Kenya in East Africa, seem to be on a path of sustained growth. Ethiopia, with the second largest population in Africa, at a sustained rate close to the highest in the world. In the top six-sevenths, global fertility is close to replacement levels and heading down. If this were the whole world, the global labour force would soon be shrinking, bringing forward the prospect of global scarcity of labour. Fertility remains high and population growth rapid in sub-Saharan Africa. Absent sustained strong growth leading to demographic transition in Africa along the lines of the rest of the world, Africa alone will keep the global labour force growing at a considerable rate. Under any scenario, Africa will contribute more than the whole of the growth in the global labour force through the 21st century. Under the most pessimistic of the United Nations projections for fertility, Africa will account for more than half the global labour force by the end of the century. Under these projections, Africa's population grows from under a billion today to more than two billion by mid-century and in the worst case, to five billion by 2100. A failure of development and demographic transition in Africa would block the, the global demographic transition and the maturation of global development. A number of other possible developments could block global development. War between major states in the nuclear age and weakly mitigated climate change are obvious possibilities. Failure of political order or development policy in major developing countries or regions. In particular, failure or long delay in growth and demographic transition in Africa or unravelling of open global trade and investment led by political response to popular revolt against globalisation in the rich countries. Blockage would deny most people the material prosperity currently enjoyed in the developed world. It would also block the release of ordinary people in rich countries from downward pressure on their living standards from the globalisation uh, of economic activity. This glance at what might be possible encourages us to think about how to make use of remarkable opportunities. Capitalism regulated by democratic polities brought economic and political success in the developed countries for more than half a century after the Second World War. A wise application of economic analysis guided democratic intervention to greatly reduce the instability and inequality that Marxist and other critics predicted would destroy capitalism. Abundant employment, incomes growth and equitable distribution underpinned political support for increasingly open markets which reinforced rising productivity and living standards. Democratic capitalism and the socialist Soviet Union together defeated Hitler's authoritarian capitalism in war and then democratic capitalism outperformed Soviet socialism in peace. In the last quarter of the 20th century, deepening links between the developed core of the world economy and the developing countries placed most of humanity on a path towards the living standards of the developed countries. To fit some large and complex areas into a single lecture, I have to do some simplifying. I'm working on a book with a young colleague at the University of Melbourne, which will supply all of the subtlety and complexity uh, for those of you who are not comfortable with the generalisations. But I'm going to talk about capitalism uh, as it evolved in the beginning, in raw form, and as it continued for quite a while, uh, uh, in the absence of democratic modification. And the exemplar of undemocratic capitalism, pure capitalism, I suppose, was Austro-Hungary uh, in uh, uh, the period leading up to the First World War, where with Vienna was the glittering capital of global intellect, 
culture, music and art, science uh, and wealth. Uh, That's raw capitalism. Um, When I talk about socialism, I'm talking about the real existing socialism that was established in the Soviet Union in 1917, extended to Eastern Europe after the uh, Second World War, the same time after the collapse of Japanese imperialism extended to China, Vietnam and North Korea. And by democratic capitalism, I I mean the, the, the capitalist system as it was modified by pressure from democratic um, polities. How it was transformed by pressure from democratic polities into something very different from the original uh, capitalism. I could just as well in my simplification tonight have called capitalist uh, uh, democratic capitalism social democracy. I think that democracy drives capitalism uh, towards social democracy if it is um, an authentic democracy uh, reflecting some conception of the popular will. Democratic capitalism can embrace a wide range of preferences and outcomes on equity and income distribution. State provision of public goods, fiscal and monetary intervention to stabilise economic conditions and proportionate size of state economic activity. Democratic capitalism handles these things in different ways. The democratic process tends towards a high degree of equity. It embodies a pragmatic approach to assessing the the case for state intervention case by case. At its best, policy choice within democratic capitalism is guided by economic analysis on how to implement democratic preferences most effectively. At its worst, it descends into arbitrary decisions on resource allocation in response to pressure from vested interests that lead to inferior outcomes when measured by the objectives and values of any authentic expression of the democratic will. Both capitalism and socialism existed as a vision and separately and differently as a reality. The capitalist vision was of an unrestrained market economy in which sanctity of property and contract, free exchange of goods, services, capital and labour were expected to produce stronger economic growth than any alternative. Any individual with energy and talent who applied himself would have opportunities for material comfort and eventually for wealth. Attempts by government to vary the natural outcomes of the operation of a market economy to reduce inequality, uh, to improve the prospects for some disadvantaged groups within society or to reduce economic instability would reduce the welfare of all, including the poor. That was capitalism. Um, The the Viennese efflorescence of culture, intellect and private wealth had a weak political base. The extreme inequality that came from capitalism without democracy contributed to social tension and revolutionary ferment. Ethnic tensions undermined the cohesion of a multiracial empire. The empire's final collapse in military defeat in 1918 was notable for the complete absence of interest in restoration of any elements of the old political system. Vienna before and after the old regime's collapse nurtured the fantasies of a young Adolf Hitler. Capitalism evolved differently in Britain, its first home. In Britain, the early systematic attempts to comprehend modern economic development focused on the importance of finding the right balance between collective goods and services and private economic activity. Here, the towering contributions in a great tradition are those of Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill, Mill especially provided early intellectual support for democratic capitalism. This was influential in the English-speaking countries as they responded to the democratisation of government through the late 19th and early 20th centuries. John Maynard Keynes in Britain, the most important public intellectual of the 20th century, provided a policy framework for democratic capitalism that could manage the deep problems of the interwar period. Frederick Hayek at the London School of Economics became the most persistent and effective opponent of Keynes' influence on post-war transatlantic economic thought. 
Hayek saw state intervention in economic activity as counterproductive and as a first step on a path to authoritarian government. Schumpeter saw different but deep problems in capitalism within a democratic political system. These are articulated in the book that we've already mentioned this evening. Hayek and Schumpeter, along with Hayek's mentor, Mies, were the leading intellectual supporters of the old war capitalism and opponents of democratic capitalism in Britain and the United States mid-century and following. They all grew up in property-owning families in Vienna and adjacent parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the years before 1914. Their sensitivity to authoritarian government can be sympathetically understood. Their judgment about democratic capitalism in practice was not grounded in observation of the reality of their time, although Schumpeter's warnings in particular ring more loudly today. In a famous exchange with Hayek late in his own life, Keynes focuses on Hayek's acceptance that there were some circumstances in which state intervention to correct market failure led to superior economic outcomes. Keynes notes that once the concession in principle has been made, the question is where you draw the line. The drawing of the line, according to Keynes, requires pragmatic assessment in the circumstances of each decision. Hayek's road to serfdom was lionised by, by United States business. The influence of Viennese theorisation about capitalism reached its apogee 60 years after the collapse of the political, social and economic regime from which it emerged, a collapse at least partly due to the unresolvable tensions generated within this view of capitalism. The capitalist reality never corresponded closely to the vision. The reality included influential use of state power to strengthen the position of established wealth as Schumpeter recognises with concern include concentration of wealth and high incomes in relatively few hands, entrenched inequality of opportunity, recurring financial crisis and a business cycle that brought periodic recession and occasional depression. While the vision was said to be value neutral, it took sides with established wealth. In well-established democratic polities like Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, more powerfully from 1932, Pressures for state intervention modified outcomes from market exchange. As it turned out, democratic capitalism was a road not to serfdom, but to personal freedom to an extent unknown, at least since the Neolithic Revolution. There was no systematic process driving a similar modification of capitalism in authoritarian systems, with Austro-Hungary the exemplar. What then of socialism? Socialism was a reaction to the harsh capitalist reality in Europe in the mid-19th century. It promised a pathway to rule in the public interest without the institutions of private property or, or market exchange. Its fatal weakness in understanding emerging reality was its denial that capitalist outcomes could be radically modified for the better in response to democratic pressures. Economic failure and repression of human freedom destroyed the legitimacy of the socialist regimes. Capitalism was invariably associated with tensions arising out of inequality. In the absence of mitigation by democracy, capitalism was also associated with profound constraints on freedom. The scapegoating of ethnic minorities was used by rulers to deflect popular anger with economic conditions away from governing elites. None of the socialist systems evolved towards democracy. The third quarter of the 20th century saw the strongest, most stable and most equitable economic expansion in history. Capitalism was directed by democracy to give priority to the welfare of ordinary citizens. Here I'm talking about the, the global story. I'll say a little bit about the Australian story later. Um, the, the, the democratic capitalism of the third quarter of the century uh, was changed beyond recognition from the from the uh, capitalism of the Belle Epoch in Vienna, Paris and London. It was far removed from the harsh cat uh, capitalism that had inspired Marxist and other revolutionary critiques. Schumpeter, in his book Capitalism, Social and, uh, Socialism and Democracy, anticipated a, diplomatic, a deeply problematic future for democratic capitalism. The trouble emerged from a contradiction Democracy allowed capital to invest in the shaping of policy to suit its own interests, thus subverting the democratic will. But the correction of the subversion would leave economic performance under capitalism vulnerable to policies preferred by democratic majorities. 
Schumpeter was right about the change in priorities manifested in the expansion of state intervention in economic activity after the war. He was wrong about its consequences. The immediate post-war democratic emphasis on expansion of opportunity through education and the social safety net had three effects. It contributed substantial improvements in equity, an acceleration of growth over the golden age decades, and greater economic stability arising from Keynesian automatic stabilisers. These conditions provided a congenial environment for opening markets for goods and services to international exchange. As a result, post-war international and domestic international institutions uh, uh, favoured expansion uh, of international trade. Economic analysis played a larger role in guiding policy decisions on economic stabilisation, on establishing a favourable balance between public and private provision of goods and services, on linking domestic to international markets and on the effects of alternative mechanisms directed at securing equity and income distribution. Policy lessons defined by Keynes in the 30s supported greater economic stability. The successful democratic capitalist countries in the second half of the 20th century were shorn of their empires. The end of empire allowed the inclusive development that was a precondition for the emergence of modern economic growth in the developing economies of Asia. There were other preconditions for developing countries participating in modern economic growth, mainly uh, related to the strength of the state, you needed an effective state, uh, and uh, economic policy. Modern economic growth is disruptive. It undermines old belief systems and creates new centres of power. It is resisted by the many interests which are damaged by it. The necessary policies are never sustained for long unless there is wide acceptance within society that the benefits of growth will be equitably shared. After a lag extending into the 1970s, intellectual and political leaders of more and more developing countries, especially in Asia, absorbed and applied knowledge about the conditions for sustained economic growth. <coughs> By the fourth quarter of the century, the conditions were being met in most countries of Asia, including China, from the end of the 70s, Indonesia from the mid-1980s and India from the early 1990s. The result in the 1990s with a dislocation in the Asian financial crisis uh, was the most, uh, extending into the 21st century, was the most broadly based modern economic development in history as developing economies containing most of the world's people joined the world economy. For the developing countries, modern economic growth was a process of catching up with the developed countries. International exchange of ideas and technology was fundamentally important. International trade in goods and services, especially so as it eased resource constraints, brought early gains in incomes and contributed to the transmission of ideas and technology. Catching up with the developed country has become easier with improvements in transport and communications technology. It has become more rewarding with the widening of a gap between technology and living standards at the frontiers and in countries which are in the early stages of modern growth. Technological change lowered the cost of moving goods and services, ideas, people and capital between countries. Policy reform facilitated links with the international economy. Globalisation gradually turned separate national markets into international markets. Until recently, it has been possible to tell the story of changing income distribution in the process of modern economic development country by country. Global development could be seen as the sum of the separate development stories of many countries. In the 21st century, we have seen the emergence of a global development story. Modern economic growth is now raising incomes in the new participants, most of the world's people, most emphatically in countries like China, in which labour has become scarce and wages have risen rapidly. At the same time, it is placing downward pressure on living standards of ordinary people in the developed countries. Largely due to these dynamics, income distribution has become more unequal in the developed countries and more equal in the world as a whole. Much has been made of the capture by the 1% of most of the increase in incomes in developed countries so far this century. The top 1% in, in the world as a whole has also done very well. 
ordinary people in the big Asian developing countries have had even bigger percentage increases in incomes. The globalization of incomes has begun, but where you live still matters a great deal. Independently of any personal characteristics related to employment, a, personal, a person's income is likely to be much higher in a developed than in a developing country and in a successful than in a poor developing country. These are what Milanovic calls citizenship rents or the unearned benefits resulting from the chance geography of birth. They are still very high in rich countries. The international movements of goods, services, people and capital, global integration reduces those rents. Lifting economic integration to the global level brings new governance challenges. Economic regulation is by the nation. The emergence of a global economy takes many activities beyond the reach of the sovereign nation. Today's crises in national man management of the taxation of capital, movement of people, carbon dioxide emissions and crime through the internet are just the beginning. After the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s, Fukuyama famously declared that history had ended with the triumph of democratic capitalism. Through the 1990s, economic development seemed to confirm the triumph. It was hardly noticed that China stepped into determined resistance to peaceful evolution to Western democracy as it deepened its engagement with global markets. The triumphalism around democratic capitalism in the 1990s deflated through the early years of this century and burst in the great crash of 2008. If the third quarter of the 20th, 21st century contained the, development, the developed world's golden age, the last quarter was silver. Silver was not good enough. The setbacks of the 1970s and their aftermath seem modest today, but were a great disappointment at the time. The new problems required measured modification of the post-war policy framework. Instead, they generated proposals for radical change. Business elites and some political leaders took the opportunity to push for a revival of indiscriminate deregulation, shrinkage of state activity and lower taxation, a return to Hayekian capitalism with a minimal state. There are lags between changes in the ideas that shape policy and policy itself. The 1970s reaction against democratic capitalism had its maximum impact at the beginning of the 21st century. This meant that extreme financial deregulation and weakening of the fiscal foundations of the state through reductions in taxation were having their maximum impact when changes in economic structure were making them most inappropriate. The great crash of 2008 was one consequence. Exacerbation of trends towards greater inequality was another. Australian policy reform worked on a different timetable and in response to different ideas. Australia moved decisively towards a more open and market economy after 1983. This had something in common with developments in the United States and the United Kingdom at the time. But Australia avoided the extreme financial deregulation of the large North Atlantic economies in the 80s and 90s. Australia strengthened rather than weakened, weakened policy to secure more equitable distribution through changes to health, education, taxation and social security. Australia had its strongest economic growth ever relative to other developed countries in the decade after the recession of 1991, while avoiding the tendency in other developed countries to widen disparity in incomes then and into the 2000s. In the last quarter of the 20th century, if the last quarter of the 20th century was a silver age for the advanced economies, the period since then has not won a place in the final if inequality in the US were maintained at its 1980 level, the top 1% would have $1 trillion less in annual income today, and the bottom 80% would have $1 trillion more. As the International Monetary Fund and the Bank of England have noted, this materially reduces demand for goods and services. There are several other important headwinds to economic growth in the rich countries in the present era. One is ageing. Uh, which has contributed to loss of business dynamism, lower investment and higher savings. Second is a marked decline in productivity growth to the lowest levels over a comparably long period since the early days of modern economic development. Complicated reasons for it. Increased inequality, ageing and the increasing weight of the global economy of China with its very high savings rate have increased global savings. Low productivity growth, ageing and the capital saving bias have reduced business investment. 
Savings have tended to exceed investment, especially after the Great Crash. Demand in the developed countries has fallen below levels necessary to support economic growth and, uh, and employment. In response to the, these headwinds, central banks have sought to revive demand with the lowest ever short-term interest rates. Unconventional monetary expansion has added additional stimulus, but the response in the economies has been weak with uh, gr growth in uh, the developed uh, economies uh, since the Great Crash, lower than in any comparably long period since the Second World War. The tendency for global savings to, in, to exceed investment have generated the lowest long-term or market interest rates in history. And this is different from what the Reserve Bank sets, the policy rates which relate to short-term rates. The long-term rates, 10-year borrowing, 30-year borrowing in the United States and Britain, um, uh, is set by markets. And there, the long-term rates are the lowest they've ever been, or lowest since uh, Elizabeth raised uh, the finance to fight the Spanish uh, when the Yamada was approaching. But we, we don't have very good data before that. Um, low long-term interest rates set in the market are the result of persistent headwinds and so are here to stay. In themselves, they are favourable for equitable distribution. They eventually reduce the incomes of wealthy people. Over time, they favour investment in public infrastructure that is important for equity and in the renewable energy that is centrally important for climate change mitigation. But their immediate effect is to increase the value of all existing wealth, land and housing, shares and government bonds. The capital gains from falling interest rates are responsible for much of the increase in income inequality observed this century. The low interest rates have increased inequality in wealth distribution between, for example, housing have-nots and housing haves. Negative distributional effects from this source are large, but as they are driven by falling interest rates will not continue once rates stabilise at low levels. They are not likely to keep increasing. Low yields on all assets are a continuing challenge for the retirement incomes of people who have not been beneficiaries of the increase in value of past accumulations of wealth. Real incomes of the majority of people have ceased to grow in the developed countries since the Great Crash of 2008. The real incomes of most people in the US and some other developed countries are below those of a generation ago. Australian income, real income per person held up better than in other developed countries until the China resources boom began its retreat late in 2011. But Australian uh, uh, real incomes per person have been stagnant or falling in every one of the 17 quarters since then. Grumpy electorates have withdrawn unconditional support for globalisation. Trade protectionism has increased. Look at steel in Europe, the United States and Australia. International trade has stopped growing. This is rare outside recessions in the developed world. There have been large re uh, electoral reactions against immigration into the United States, Britain, continental Europe and Australia. Australia and the United Kingdom have blocked large-scale direct investment from China of kinds which have been explicitly welcomed not long before. Institutional cross-border integration has ground to a halt. The Doha Round, initiated in 2001, is the first multilateral trade negotiation to fail. The wounding of the Trans-Pacific Partnership by Donald Trump has drawn applause. The English have, no have voted to withdraw from European Union and Brexit has stalled negotiations on a European-United States trade agreement. <coughs> Anti-EU feeling is strong across the members of the bloc. The democratic response to popular grievance interacts with vested interests increased hold over the democratic political process in the developed countries. Private interests have become more skilled in making and getting value from investment in the political process. These developments are especially acute in Australia and the United States, where corporate donations are hardly constrained at all by laws on campaign finance, not even donations by foreign entities, and is reinforced by the influence of a single dominant media group especially in Australia. Meanwhile, independent citizens and institutions have less influence in policy making. Independent contributors to the analysis and public discussion of policy choice were critically important to the success of democratic capitalism in the post-war period and to the reform era in Australia. They, were, they are now diluted by the cacophony of comment from economists paid by various private interests 
to influence the policy debate on their behalf. The clash between vested and popular pressures, uninformed by independent analysis, leads to arbitrary and inconsistent decisions and over time to lower productivity growth and economic performance. Globalisation compounds the problem of corporate investment in the political process. Global capital has no home. It owes a legal duty to shareholders and not to any of the countries in which it operates. Corporate involvement in the political process sets up tension not only between capital and the general run of citizens, but between foreign and domestic interests. <coughs> this important issue has risen to prominence in Australia around Chinese political donations. While there are additional layers of problems with some Chinese donations, there are very real problems with all foreign donations. In Australia, which has become by far the largest recipient of Chinese direct investment relative to the size of economy, popular distrust of foreign investment interacts with genuine security reasons for restricting Chinese investment. Globalisation gives capital more opportunity to avoid and to evade national taxation. Some countries lower taxation rates to attract investment. This erodes the tax base of others. International tax evasion favours large international over small businesses in each country. Lower tax revenues undermine the capacity of the nation state to fund the programs that were important to the success of democratic capitalism. Less corporate tax revenue means higher tax on households at a time when real disposable income per person is falling. Democratic re capitalism return to success depends on reconciling concerns for ordinary citizens' standards of living with the demands of globalisation. Global economy will work better with global governance. However, there's little tolerance for international governance in contemporary dem democratic polities. There are advantages in governance at smaller scales where it is appropriate. Efforts towards global government should therefore concentrate on issues where it has the greatest value. The first guiding principle should be subsidiarity, the taking of decisions at the lowest possible level of government to which um, they can sensibly be taken. This is a principle of European Union governance, the dishonouring of which contributed to the British vote to leave. Under subsidiarity, the decision should be left to to lower governments unless there are very good reasons not to. The recent proliferation of preferential trade agreements and the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, focus strongly on the negotiation of behind-the-border regulation, uh, which I would see as low priority and with maximum political difficulty. Coordination and reform of regulatory arrangements can generate large benefits but it's much more likely to be fruitful if it involves voluntary decisions following open discussion among representatives of states and within each domestic community. The negotiation of arrangements on immigration, intellectual property and extraterritorial rights of business against governments was of doubtful potential value and a bridge too far. A focus on unilateral liberalisation of trade at the border within a framework of concerted action towards an agreed goal of multilateral free trade is more likely to be productive. This recognises the sovereign state as the locus of decisions with the domestic electorate the main constraint on policy choice. Domestic public education on the effects of trade liberalisation in the context of wider policies supporting equitable distribution can expand what is feasible. On, on investment, Australia is entangled in a web of security reasons and populist pressures for excluding some Chinese investment. We need to uphold security interests. We also need to establish transparent process and remove officials' discretion case by case to transfer billions of dollars of public revenue to private entities. That's what's been done in the transferred uh, decision. New, new owners will pay its anticipated billions of dollars less and that's a decision on which almost by definition uh, when we do not have any information that involves security decisions. Yeah. Um, we need to establish, uh, we need to uphold security interests, uh, but we need to establish transparent process uh, and uh, uh, remove official discretion. The wise course is for the government on official advice to define and to make public the list of business assets that have such high security value 
that they cannot be allowed to be sold to foreigners at all, or in the most sensitive areas, not sold into private ownership at all. On dealing with international tax evasion, the exchange of taxation information among national tax authorities uh, uh, helps and has been the subject of agreements in the G20 and other global fora. And our own Prime Minister made useful contributions on that uh, in China over the past week. Coordination of tax policies would stop a race to the bottom but must overcome corporate pressure on each state to withhold cooperation. It may be feasible, uh, uh, cooperation among states uh, on, on coordination of, uh, of tax rates, for example, it may be feasible amongst a subset of major countries. Larger states can apply pressure to opportunistic smaller states because smaller states can undermine uh, the whole attempt at cooperation. New forms of business taxation, too, could be adopted to reduce opportunities for shifting profits into tax havens or low-tax regimes. Large business generally opposes measures to strengthen the corporate tax base. The reactions to the Australian Resource Super Profits Tax, in which the hands of opponents were strengthened by large errors in taxation design and European penalties against Apple, are early battles in a war for the future of democratic capitalism. Australia in the dog days after the end of the resources boom faces severe adjustment challenges to the changing international situation as well as to its special circumstances. The structural budget deficit has to be reduced and the real exchange rate depreciated further, making the necessary adjustment while minimising the reduction in living standards for ordinary citizens must be a touchstone of policy reform. The necessary increases in taxation and reductions in expenditure will only be achieved by a government satisfying a major part of the electorate and the Senate that the proposals allocate the burden equitably across the community. Must do this in an electorate sensitised by recent experience to the, to the influence of corporate interests on the composition of the budget. How to curb the excess of influence of corporate and trade union donations on policy question has been placed on the Australian public policy agenda by the recent work of ICAC in New South Wales and by publicity for Chinese donations to Australian political parties and leaders. Campaign funding reform has been the subject of recent discussions sponsored by the John Cain Foundation. There are problems in any approach short of bans on all donations by companies, trade unions and foreign citizens as proposed by former leader of the opposition in the Federal Liberal Party, John Hewson. Uh, under this approach, uh, political campaigns will be funded from public sources and from donations up to a moderate limit from individual citizens on the Australian electoral roll. Reforms like this have been introduced in Scandinavia and Canada. <coughs> the massive, disruptive, beneficent and surprising process of modern economic development that emerged on the island of Britain a quarter of a millennium ago has changed course again in the 21st century. That change has thrown up large problems. The challenges are large, but the benefits of overcoming them larger still. At stake is the possibility that the whole of humanity could enjoy the fruits of modern economic growth while some of our grandchildren are alive. The abundance of capital and scarcity of labour that would accompany the extension of high material living standards to all of humanity would make for more equitable distribution within each country and in the world as a whole. Getting things right requires conservative reform to restore the integrity of democratic political systems that have been weakened by the growing influence of vested interests. It requires innovation in policy to deal with new issues arising out of the globalisation of economic life. If we get it right, the maturation of global, government, of global development can be led by confident democratic capitalist societies freed from the subterranean pull of pre-democratic ideology. Yet we would be naive to think that democratic capitalism will be alone in the long march out of human poverty. China is struggling now with adjustment of its economic system for transition to a high-income country. The Chinese Communist Party's struggle against corruption may turn out to be a cover for the settling of factional scores. The recent setback into authoritarian assertion may go further and block the free and confident exchange that underpins a modern economy. 
But there is a chance that movement along today's rocky road will lead eventually to an authoritarian capitalist economy with Chinese socialist characteristics that restores and retains legitimacy by delivering equitably distributed prosperity. The contest of political systems will occur within a more complex global political environment. There will be other powerful states with different variations on the themes of democratic capitalism and authoritarian capitalism. Continued economic success in the great Asian democracies, India and Indonesia, may turn out to be transformational. The recent strengthening of authoritarian government in such major countries as China, Egypt, Russia, Turkey, Thailand and the Philippines adds complexity. International pluralism in political systems is going to be the reality and peace and the maturation of global development depend on us making that work. Australia is just about the world's oldest democracy and a pioneer of such central democratic institutions as manhood suffrage, the secret ballot and votes for women. And hats off to, uh, to John's great-grandmother for uh, uh, her pioneering contribution globally to votes for women. All of these developments were noticed and helped to change the world. And ours was the most successful of the democratic capitalist societies for several decades until a few years ago. We've recently walked into harder times. We need to correct the weaknesses for our own sakes. Correcting the weaknesses will encourage the rest of humanity to see democratic capitalism as a worthwhile vehicle for the, large, for the last stages of humanity's journey to the maturation of global development. That possibility is worth the effort. Thank you.